Amen. The book of Daniel. So turn to Daniel chapter 1, if you would. The book of Daniel is an interesting book, maybe a little different than most Old Testament books. It's got a, a lot of narrative. It's got a lot of history in it. Uh, that history is pretty well known, so I'm going to go through the history pretty quickly uh, because our Sunday school children and Sunday school children around the world uh, learn about Daniel and the lion's den. They learn about the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. Uh, they learn about, of course, uh, and, we'll, and then there's some more mysterious things that are interesting. Um, there's Nebuchadnezzar and what happens to him in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, there's the great dream, the great image, which to Daniel and his contemporaries was eschatology, but it actually was fulfilled as we see that great statue in Daniel chapter 2 that Lord willing we'll look at next week. And then there's some um, apocalyptic literature parts of Daniel too. Some parts of it fulfilled um, already. Some parts of it take us all the way to the end of the world. And we just need to be discerning as we read through the book of Daniel to see which is which. So I'm going to try, oh no, I left my glasses wherever I left them. So I'll do the best I can. <laughs> you know, I just realized I don't have my glasses. And so let's hope the big type, <laughs> let's hope my type was bigger than it is. So help me, or forgive me if I stumble. But Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and brought them to the house, or brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So in history, we're about 609 BC, okay? 600 years before the Lord, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehoiakim, a king of Judah, a descendant of David, and um, he takes the throne. The third year of his reign, and it was a wicked reign, by the way, it was a wicked reign, Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem. The Lord sold him into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, is what it says. And Judah was helpless against the attacks of the armies of the Chaldeans. They ransacked Jerusalem. They raided the temple. They didn't destroy the temple yet. But they raided the temple. They took items out of the temple, put them into the temple of their own God. And really, this is a foreshadowing of something very horrible that's going to happen. Because uh, what's going to happen when Belshazzar takes, uh, uh, takes the, the new king of Babylon, takes the throne, uh, he will call for those items that were taken from the temple and have a drunken party with them, you know. And that's where the handwriting on the wall comes in, saying that uh, your days are numbered, basically. We'll get there, and we'll see it. So, yeah, a, a mysterious hand, a disembodied hand, writing on the wall, your days are numbered. And um, that was the last night Babylon existed. It was captured that very evening. So, you know, that was a fatal blow to Babylon, and we already see. So right in these first two verses, we see a foreshadowing of some things that are taking place. For the next eight years, Jehoiakim ruled as a puppet king, uh, having to bow to Nebuchadnezzar, pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. Finally, he rebels, and when he rebels, um, well, it wasn't good for him, believe me. And it wasn't good for Jerusalem, 
that, you know, and so Babylon came in with force this time. Well, verse 3. Then the king, okay, so the house was God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. And this is where Daniel comes in. He's one of those that's brought in this very first small wave of captives. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So this first wave were taken of the nobility and of some of the finest youth, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Babylonian names, being part of that group, and Daniel also too. And not to be slaves though, they weren't being, they weren't being put into any kind of servitude or, or difficulty. In fact, uh, what they were was being treated probably better than they had it in Jerusalem. Uh, they were going to be cared for, they were going to be educated, they were going to be trained, they were going to be fed, you know. And so all these things are taking place because the Babylonians realized something. And uh, very smart, and uh, Rome would follow this example later. Babylonians realized that uh, if you capture the whole world, the whole world's against you. So what are you going to do? You know, eventually you're going to fall. And so what they did was instead they took these hand-picked individuals, going to train them to be Babylonians, train them in all the science of the day and in all of the finest uh, learning of the day, going to take care of them. For three years they'd be trained and then they'd become leaders and rulers. And uh, hopefully by doing that uh, the people would not want to rebel against their own rulers that were their own kinsmen. That was what the idea was. It didn't go that way for Daniel. Um, Daniel never went back to Jerusalem and it didn't go that way for Jerusalem either because they ended up being totally decimated and destroyed along with the temple. But that was the whole idea. That was the Babylonian idea and how they tried to capture different kingdoms and control the different kingdoms. So at the tender age of 14, here's young Daniel. Remember when you were 14? How would you like to be carted off to a strange land when you're 14 years old, you know? I mean, that's that's got to be tough. And taken from his home, strange land, strange language, you know, all these things. But like I said, it wasn't slavery. And so, verse 5, the king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So, you know, the students provided everything that they needed. Uh, but notice their, their names were changed, verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. So his name is changed from God has judged to what they think means uh, Belteshazzar, keeper of the hidden treasures of Bel. Bel is one of the false gods. And so they give him those kind of names. And the same thing happened to Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called him Meshach, and Azariah, he called him Abednego. And uh, I couldn't find uh, anyone that would speak with authority on what those names mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But most seem to agree that uh, these were some forms of uh, the ancient Babylonian gods being named after them. Okay. So now we have four devout 
believers. In, in a captivity of sorts, but in a training period too. And we can call them the remnant that God reserved for himself out of an unfaithful nation. I'm not trying to say they're the only believers. I'm not, not saying that. But here's a remnant that we know about that are named. A very small group. Uh, really a small group amongst uh, the ones that were captured with them. Uh, we have no idea what happened to the others. The others that were captured. We hear the history of four. These four here. And it does remind us that God always has a faithful remnant that calls upon his name. It was true then, still true today. You know, Elijah was of the belief that he was the only one left of all the prophets. He's a great prophet. But he cries out to God, I'm the only one left, you know. And uh, God, pretty merciful. God didn't say, quit your sniveling, you know. <laughs> he says, I got 4,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Okay. Now, 4,000 is a remnant, right? That's a pretty small remnant when you're talking about an entire nation. 4,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But um, that's what God said. Well, Daniel's one of the great heroes of the Bible, like I said. Lived to be an old man. And, interesting thing about Daniel. He's the only Bible character, I believe, some would disagree with this, but the only Bible character that's a major figure that we don't find anything wrong in his service to the Lord. And, and never failing a test of his faith while he lived his entire life in exile. Uh, some would argue that Joseph fits that, that um, model also with his brothers. Um, but I think maybe we can find a little bit of, of vainglory as, as uh, John Bunyan likes to call it in, in Joseph's life, you know. Uh, talking to his brothers the way that he did and, and then treating his brothers the way that, now they deserved what they got. But just because somebody deserves what they got doesn't mean you have to treat them that way. You know, so that's just my opinion about Joseph. Some say Joseph uh, is a perfect example too. But Daniel certainly is. He's one of the few uh, that we don't find anything amiss in his life. Abraham, of course we do. David, of course we do. All you have to do is say those names and you can think right away of some of their great failures. Daniel, persecuted, he stands resolute, a man of prayer at all times, even when it was against the law, and against all odds, because God doesn't deal with odds, against all odds, he continually rises to prominence again and again. And even when Babylon's overthrown and the Medes and Persians come in, he still rises to prominence and becomes part of the new government. Now verse 8 and 9. Okay. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, on a first reading you might think, well, you know, uh, the food that uh, the Babylonians were eating was forbidden food to the Israelites and to the Jews. And, and maybe so. Uh, it well could be. We're not told that directly, that it was forbidden food, that they were going to break dietary laws and such like that. It, it's very, very possible. But I think there's another plausible explanation uh, for the request that Daniel 
and the three Hebrew children make. Um, food often has a religious connotation. Even to this very day, it often does. And in this particular case, the very best food of the land probably was offered to the gods of Babylon and then taken to their lesser god, Nebuchadnezzar, and his family to eat, and his household to eat, and, and those that he's caring for, like these young men that have been taken captive from the various nations. So it becomes a variation of food offered to idols, I think, in the pagan lands. And it's, some <coughs> it's something that would follow itself all the way into the New Testament and become one of the great controversies in Corinth um, later on about eating food offered to idols. And, and by the way, you know, um, it, it's, it's never proper, it's not Christian liberty to eat food offered to idols when you know that it's been offered to idols. Okay, that's, that sometimes gets mistaken by people. Um, well, back to the text. The four refused to eat the king's food, and God granted them favor, as you just saw in verse number nine. And that's an important to note, because the officials, by refusing or by actually letting Daniel and the Hebrew children not eat this food that was considered nutritious, to make them strong, to make them healthy, to make them vibrant, you know, they're asking to eat vegetables. I, I, that, that's a tough one, asking to be a vegetarian. That's, that's a tough one, you know. But that's what they're going to do here. And um, they, it's putting the officials on the line. The officials are basically saying, and I'm not going to read those verses, but the officials are saying, you know, what you're asking is hard because if you don't look right and act right and pass the tests, it's going to be our heads. <laughs> We're the ones that are going to suffer. We're the ones that are going to die. Kind of tough in those days, wasn't it? You know? But Oriental kings, man, uh, you, you didn't goof with them. You know, they, they ruled as despots. Let's go down to verse 12. Okay, so anyway, the request was granted. Well, here's the request, sorry. Here's what the request is, and it will be granted. You know, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So, he listened to them in this manner. Why did he listen to them? Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion, okay, in the sight, okay. So we see the sovereignty of God here. Uh, and then, so he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. And of course, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. They passed the 10-day test without a problem without difficulty, and, um, and of course came out the stronger for it. We go to verse 15, at the end of the 10 days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. You wouldn't consider that a good thing, would you? Well, they're, they're, in this case it is, you know, and fatter in flesh and, um, and fairer than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables, okay. And of course, God was in control of it all. As for these four youths, 
God gave them learning, skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Verse 18, time to stand before the king. At the end of time, the three years, when the kingdom, or when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. You know, four young men standing out. And this is the testimony of them. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and all the enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. <coughs> verse 21 is kind of an interesting verse because we've taken a, a massive leap in time. From 14-year-old Daniel to 17-year-old Daniel to probably about 84-year-old Daniel. Because that would be around how old Daniel would be at the time of King Cyrus, you know. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes here. But uh, a few lessons first from chapter 1. A few things that we can observe there. First thing we'd say is that it takes courage to serve the Lord in a pagan land. It takes courage to serve the Lord in a pagan land. But, you know, there's also opportunities. Opportunities come from serving the Lord in a pagan land. And you don't have to be back exiled to Babylon to be in a pagan land. You don't even have to go to the foreign mission field to be in a pagan land. Our own country has plenty of paganism in it that we can be really Daniels here, you know. And um, it's just, I'll, I'll use a, a, contemporary, a contemporary illustration. These things can get you in trouble. But it's well documented, it's the news. I don't know how I'd get in trouble for saying it because it's true. And um, we have a current president who's decided that one of his major campaign planks is going to be to fight for abortion rights. That's what he's gonna do. He's gonna fight to bring back Roe v. Wade and make abortion legal in all of the states. And that's what he said he's going to do. Uh, I doubt he can do it, but that's what he claims he's going to do in a bid to gain votes. There's some things that make this especially terrible. Obviously, abortion. I don't have to tell you how horrible abortion is and how terrible abortion is and, and, and the lives that are ruined by, okay, I don't have to tell you that. You know that. But our president is a devout Roman Catholic. And he's even had audiences with the Pope. And the Pope never said a word about abortion. Didn't say a word. And I saw on TV an interview with Biden. He was quite pleased with himself after seeing the Pope. You know, that the Pope did not rebuke him for saying that he was going to repeal abortion rights. You know, Pope never brought it up. You know, it wasn't an issue. And one more thing I'd say is almost all of his career until he became vice president, he was anti-abortion. Okay. Well, and it takes courage to serve the Lord in a pagan land, but it doesn't take any courage at all to be a pagan in a pagan land. 
And that's what we see happening here. Just one more example. We could have named other examples too. Not the only one. But that's a good one. Right there, I believe it's a good one. Backwards, ungodly thinking. But you know what? God always has a remnant. And church, you're part of that remnant. You know? And there's not a whole lot of us here, and so we might not think we're very powerful. We may not think that we're going to do very much. But um, Daniel and three Hebrew children shook the whole nation of Babylon, you know. And so it's really up to God what God decides to do, how God decides to use us, and if we're going to be a faithful remnant to the Lord. You know, there's going to be times we're going to have to be unpopular and take unpopular stance, stances, even stances that offend people. But if it's true, we must do that. So it brings us to the second point that we see here. When put to the test, we must refuse to compromise. Now these young men, they asked permission to have an alternate diet. And it was granted to them. And that was the right approach to make. The right approach was to ask permission for it. And in fact, they even prospered. Those in authority over them prospered. Everyone came out a winner. But what if that hadn't been granted? Well, we can figure out what would happen from the rest of the book of Daniel. What happened when the three Hebrew children refused to bow to the statue? They refused, absolutely refused. They were brought in, given another chance to bow. They refused. Now what happens? Well, they're thrown into the fiery furnace, is what happens. Okay? That's what happened. So they, I think, would have stood, but God was gracious instead of making it happen. What happened to Daniel when um, he refused to, uh, to stop praying? The decree was made to, nobody could pray to any king except the king of the Medes and the Persians. For 30 days, you don't ask anything of the gods or any god, only the king. Well, the king in his pride signs that. The law can't be changed. So what does Daniel do? Well, Daniel could have gone into his prayer closet and hidden, but that was not his normal way of doing it. His normal way of doing it was to pray by his window where he could be seen. So what did Daniel do? Daniel prayed by his window. And what happened? He got thrown to the lion's den. Okay. There was no guarantee in any of these cases that the Hebrew children were going to survive the fiery furnace. That takes a miracle. They got a miracle. No guarantee that the, the lions wouldn't uh, tear Daniel to pieces. Um, they, they were hungry enough that they tore the other guys to pieces when they got thrown in there. Okay. They didn't have any guarantee. But they did have faith and they did have belief. You see, if you had a guarantee that everything would work out for you really fine, uh, you couldn't be a martyr. Things didn't work out fine for any of the martyrs, did they? They died horrible deaths. But guess what happened when they died their horrible death? Instantly in the presence of the Lord, which is far better. So these things always work out for good to those that are the faithful remnant that love God, you know. Well, by being faithful in little things, 
you can be faithful in much. That's very important. You've got to be faithful in the little things. If you won't be faithful in the little things, then you can't be faithful in anything, to tell you the truth. You can't be trusted with anything. You need to be faithful. It's a biblical principle. And so the remnant of four passed the food test, and they would pass bigger tests in years, years to come. But if they had failed here in the matter of food, humanly speaking, we would have never heard their names again. Humanly speaking, they fail here, and just like it would appear their compatriots failed, then you'd never hear from them. They'd be assimilated. They'd be Babylonians going along with the program. And of course, um, most likely ended up in hell. You know. Now, as time goes on here, the majority of the Jews eventually are carried off to Babylon in, in various captivities. And uh, the land is just left desolate. The temple is absolutely destroyed. You know, uh, but um, when they were captured, when they were taken, they were taken in chains, and they weren't taken to be honored and trained formally. Okay. So, simply displaced. Because in the Babylonians' eyes, they were rebels. Continually rebelling against Babylonian authority. But again, it goes deeper than that. And the book of Daniel doesn't talk about the rest of the, of the captivity. You know, it doesn't talk about that. It's talking about Daniel in Babylon, basically, you know. But uh, the other scriptures do. Second Kings, Second Chronicles talks about the carrying away uh, into Babylon. The book of Jeremiah does the same thing. But the thing to understand is that it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar who took them into exile. It was the Lord who had them captured because of their sins, especially their idolatry. But even amongst those that were captured, taken to Babylon, there still remained a faithful remnant to the Lord God in that strange land. And uh, we can read about them in Psalm 37, uh, where they say, how can we sing uh, the, so the songs of Zion in a strange land? And we hung our harps by the willow tree, and they're just you know, in grief over the situation. Still trusting the Lord, though. Eventually, God would bring a remnant of Jews out of Babylon and back into the promised land. And it wasn't said in the book of Daniel, but alluded to in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. It was under Cyrus that the exile ended. And um, he's the one that officially ended it and allowed the Jews who wished to do so to return back home. It's amazing that Isaiah himself had prophesied 150 years earlier that Cyrus, by name, would be used of the Lord. I'll just quote the verse to you. It's Isaiah 44, 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasures, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. You know, that verse is used by skeptics to prove that Isaiah was not written by Isaiah. Isaiah couldn't write that because the city wouldn't be built. It's already built in Isaiah's time. The temple's foundation will not uh, need to be built. It's already built. There's the temple right there. You know, we can see it. 
So it would be easy for the skeptics of today. They wouldn't say we could see it because it wouldn't, okay, went a little too far there. But uh, the skeptics say, you know, how, how could that be? So obviously we know uh, that the book of Daniel, written later than it says it was, probably second century. Isaiah written probably second century because after all, how could Isaiah possibly know about Cyrus? How could Isaiah possibly say that Jerusalem's going to be built? How could Isaiah possibly say that the temple's foundation is going to be laid? How do you think Isaiah knew that? I know you know. <laughs> because God told him, right? As simple as that. This is prophecy. You know, prophecies come and prophecies get fulfilled. And sometimes we get to see the prophecy being fulfilled. One of the problems that we have in eschatology today is a lot of people are looking at prophecies that have already been fulfilled and saying, when are they going to be fulfilled? This is going to say, well, come on, guys. Uh, it reminds me of something that uh, Peter says, of this they are willingly ignorant, you know. And that's what, they say. that's what they say about the flood, you know. All things have stayed the same since the fathers fell asleep. This they're willingly ignorant of, that the flood came and caused all of the devastation, the changes and such like that. So, no, by faith, <coughs> excuse me, by faith we know that Daniel is a book of prophecy. He's got a lot of prophecies given that will go past his lifetime, but before the time of Christ, into the time of Christ. And then he's got prophecies that will actually take us uh, to where we were in the book of Revelation. And as I already told you, if you were here, um, Daniel's 70 weeks doesn't happen to be one of those prophecies. I believe Daniel's 70 weeks was fulfilled uh, at, in 70 AD. And so some people are still waiting for the, the last week of Daniel's prophecy to be fulfilled. And I'd say, well, you're waiting for something that's already happened. You know, that doesn't make any sense to do that. So anyway, let me continue on. Just a couple more things here. Cyrus, mentioned by name, as I said. Second Chronicles 36, 22 through 23. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord came by the mouth of Jeremiah that it might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. It's the Lord that caused this to happen. Takes a pagan king and speaks through him and issues this proclamation that changes everything and actually brings the Jews back into the land. Here's the proclamation. All the kingdoms of the earth, uh, sorry, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who's among you of all his people? May the Lord be with him and let him go. And then you get into the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. You find out that the provisions were given so this could happen. There were opponents, opponents from without, opponents from within. Those that fought against that idea of a temple being rebuilt took a lot longer than you thought it would, took a lot longer than probably it should, but uh, nonetheless, it did come to pass, and Cyrus was used of the Lord. You know, what does the Bible say? The hand of the king 
is in the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And, uh, you know, I said something about Joe Biden earlier that uh, I don't take back. But I will say this. Pray, pray for the man. Because the Lord can change his heart too. You know, pray for him. That, that's what we can do. You know, that, that's not doing nothing. That's doing something. Something powerful. How many people are praying for him? I don't think a lot. You know, pray for him. And the Lord can change his heart. You know, or the Lord can change his presidency and bring in a new president. It's up to the Lord. Or we can get what we deserve. And I'd rather not get what we deserve. <laughs> you know, I love my country. I, I love our people. And may God grant us freedom of the gospel, freedom of religion to continue. Not, not, sending, not saying the United States of America is a country that aborts its babies. You know? Uh, I know California is going to do that. And we can pray that that can change. But California is going to do that unless God does a mighty work. But there are states where they've said, no, we're not going to do that. We're, we're not going to allow abortion on demand. And, and uh, we uphold them and are glad for the stance they take. Well, one thing happened, and this is where I'll close. You know, one thing happened for sure that paved the way for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. When they did go back into the land, they were anything but perfect. They had their problems. And, and they certainly weren't actively looking for Messiah to come. He come. He came and he wasn't even recognized, you know, by most. Uh, they weren't doing that. But they had rid themselves of idolatry. No longer were they following after pagan deities which had plagued them from the time of the Exodus. You know, no longer were they following pagan deities. But one thing I do think, and um, this, this came across my mind and got a little bit of time so I can say it, you know. One of the things that they did do, and this became a problem, was instead of looking for Messiah, they were content with their temple. They loved their temple. And their temple became an idol, tell you the truth. There, there just was. It, it was meant to be the house of God. Jesus Christ called it his father's house. That's what it was meant to be, but it actually became a pagan temple in so many ways because of the way it was treated and the way it was held in their hearts. It became an idol of its own. So what did God do? Destroyed it. That's what God does. And you should be very, very glad, I should be very, very glad when God destroys the idols of our heart, you know, that's his mercy. That's his grace that does that. So the majority stayed behind and did not go back to Babylon. Many were content to stay there. Uh, they would be a people of their own eventually. We, we'd see them in the New Testament um, as the Greek-speaking Jews, you know, in various places. And the Lord even used them because they set up synagogues in various places where they happened to be. Let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll partake in the Lord's Supper tonight. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the testimony of Daniel. As we go quickly through this book, and then having to slow down sometimes when we get to the more difficult parts, I pray that we would learn practical things here 
Lord, we know the story of Daniel. We know the story of the three Hebrew children. We've been told them since childhood, many of us have. But Lord, help us to gain fresh insights and new thoughts. And may they be directed to you, to the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.